Good morning. Let me ask you to pray with me as we look at God's Word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your Word, that we can come and we can study it, that we can hear it uh, be preached. And Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would bless this time, that it would be a time that's encouraging, a time that is glorifying to you, uh, a time that we can find hope and we can find redemption. Uh, for our stories, because you've written this wonderful story, this loving story of redemption. And so I pray that you would bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing our series of learning to love God's Word, and we're going through the Bible book by book, and today we're going through the book of Matthew. And I, I love the Gospels because it's, they're four different Gospels, but they're all telling one story. There are four different writers who write in four different unique ways in four different audiences that they're writing to, and yet they're all telling the same story. You have Matthew, who's writing uh, to people who have this large Jewish influence, and they know the Old Testament really well, and he's an accountant. <laughs> so he's very orderly and linear and structured, right? And then you have Mark, who's writing to people who are suffering and dying for the gospel, and so he's just trying to get it out as fast as he can. So he's like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, go! And it's the short one, right? Because he's writing to people who are dying. And then you have Luke, the doctor, right? You can just imagine him with his white coat. He's going around trying to get all the details. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about what you witnessed. Yes, I'm getting all the details down. Okay, thank you. Good. All right. And then you have John, right? And he writes this beautiful language about the Messiah, you know, he's like this artist. He's like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, you know, I'm sure he had drawings with his writing too. But, but what's so cool is that they're presenting the same story. They're presenting the story that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah that the, that the Old Testament talks about and that the Jewish people are waiting for. This is who they've been waiting for. And this idea of they're using this method of storytelling to tell the story that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is really important because this idea of story hopefully will resonate with you because the truth is we're all a story, right? Like all of our lives are stories and our lives are made up of stories. And if all of our lives are stories, you have to think about how we live by the stories that we tell ourselves, Okay, here's an example. You might say, I'm the smartest person in the room. And you tell yourself that story. And so when people come around and say things that might be intellectual, intellectual or clever, then you always have to top them and show how you are more brilliant than they are. And you kind of become an intellectual snob and kind of a jerk, and no one wants to be around you, if that's the story that you live by. Or maybe kind of the opposite, right? Like you say, I'm, not, I'm the dumbest person in the room, and like no one wants to hear what I have to say. I just need to be quiet, because let's be honest, I don't have anything to share with the group. And you kind of sit off to the side, and you feel worthless, and you're very quiet, and you don't contribute into the community where it would be valuable. Or maybe you tell yourself the story that I'm the one who has to save my group, like my family, or my children, or my friends. Like I'm the one who has to fix them. And if I don't do it, then all hope is lost for them. i got to do this. i got to help them. And you're this huge ball of anxiety and fear and pressure because you're telling yourself this story that everything depends on you. And what I want to kind of 
ask you this morning and challenge you with is, what if there's a bigger story? What if there's a story that is so much, so much more beautiful and bigger and more purposeful and more significance is in it than just you, than just your story? So let's look at the story of Matthew. Let's look at the story that Matthew tells and see that, the, that there's a bigger story of loving redemption that, that is written. This is Matthew. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Did you think I was going to tell a 21st century story? This is how you wrote a story in the first century. This is how you tell a really long story in a short amount of time. Okay? It's through a genealogy. And you do it because you're saying, look, in a genealogy, all of these people's stories make up a bigger story. All of these people are important because their story is part of this bigger story. And the story is telling us something. Who does the story start with? It starts with Abraham. Remember who Matthew is writing to. Starts off with Abraham. Why old Abe? Why does he start there? Well, if you go back and look at Genesis 12, you see how God says to Abraham, Look, I want you to leave where you are. I want you to go to this land, and I'm going to bless you, and I want you to be a blessing to the whole world, to all the nations. And then in Genesis 15, 5, he says to him, I want you to look up in the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. That's what he starts with. And then you have the story that's, that's faithful to the generations that come after him, all of his descendants too, with, with uh, Isaac and Jacob. And you see how the descendants grow and they become bigger and bigger and they actually become a, a huge group and they're enslaved to the country of Egypt. They're enslaved to this guy named Pharaoh. And God comes and he rescues them. He hears their cries. They cry out to him like, you're our God. You promised us. You made a covenant to us. You said you would bless us. And he hears their cries, and he saves them. He rescues them. He delivers them from Pharaoh. He delivers them from Egypt and saves them. He cares for them. He takes them out into the wilderness. He says, you are now my people. You're mine. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to love you. I want to bless you, and I want you to be a blessing. And over the years, he takes them to that land that he finally promised. He finally takes them to the land that he promised Back to Abraham. You see why Abraham's kind of a big deal? Father Abraham, right? He's a big deal. He's a huge part. He's considered the father of the Jewish people. That's who Matthew's writing to. He's a huge part to their story. You follow this story through the historical books of the Old Testament, and you see how Israel, who's now God's nation, how they obey him. And you hear all these stories about what they're doing and how they're following him. And then you hear these stories also about how they rebel. And they say, we don't want any part of you, God. And you see how God is continually pursuing them and continually buying them back, continually redeeming them and going and saying, no, look, you're my people. I want you to respond to me. And you hear these stories about how they repent and they come back to him. You hear these stories about how they have these judges and how they then want a king to be their ruler. And so he brings a king. 
there's a famous king that he brings, a man after his own heart, a man who's going to rule over Israel and be a huge blessing. You see it in verse 6. It says, And Jesse, the father of David, the king. In this genealogy, this is the only time it says the word the king. Okay? This is the king to the Jewish people. David is the king. Why is he the king? Well, it's because of 2 Samuel 7. It's because of the covenant that God made with David. God went to David and said, Look, you're the king right now, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make one of your descendants the king of kings. One of your descendants will be on the throne, and he will rule forever. And he made that promise to him. He made that covenant to him. See why David's kind of an important person to the Jewish story? Unfortunately, the kings after David are not always so faithful. Even David himself wasn't that faithful at the end. Um, you see how these guys are um, unfaithful, and you have the prophets who come, and they're the mouthpiece of God, and they go to the king, and they go to the Israelites, and they say, look, I want you to repent. I want you to go back to God. Please change and follow him. He's your redeemer. He's your savior. He's the God who loves you. He's the God who's been writing the story of redemption for you. Go back to him, please. They also say, look, a Messiah's coming too. Someone's going to come and he's going to be your savior. That's why you go back to God. That's why you go back. And these prophets, they, they're pleading with, with Israel. They're pleading. And then they're also saying, look, if you don't do this, God is going to give you a consequence. That's what we say in our house. God is going to give you a consequence if you don't listen. And God gives them a consequence because they don't listen. And you and I know it as the exile. You see it here in verse 11 and 12. He's going through all these generations. He's talking about these different kings. And he says, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. The deportation to Babylon. That is the exile. That is when... In 598 A.D., the Babylonian Empire comes in and they take over Israel and they make them their slaves. In Israel, God's chosen nation is now a group of slaves. They're captives because they have not been faithful to God. And this is their consequence. This is their punishment. But even as captives, God is still faithful to them. God is still going and wooing them back. He's still going and saying, look, I want to fight for you. I'm going to work for you. I'm going to be faithful to you. And he uses these prophets before the deportation and then during the deportation and then after the deportation to say, put your faith back in God. A Messiah is coming. He will save you. He will help you. He will redeem you. And you might say, like, why do they include that painful story? Like, when we talk about story, why do you include all these sad parts? Like, just focus on the happy ones. Just focus on, like, David and Abraham and other ones. Don't focus on the painful one. Just forget about that and move on. Why does he include this painful part? Well, he includes this painful part to show you that you need to tie your story into God's story of redemption. Here's what one author says about it. He says, Being a part of God's story is the only resource under which we can heal our wounds. Do you hear that? 
Being a part of God's story is the only resource under which we can heal our wounds. Like, if you want to have your pain and your wounds transformed and actually grow from them and to be part of something bigger than just yourself, you have to participate in God's story, too. You have to tie your story into God's. The author goes on to say, Pain brings us to the Father whose heart is full of delight and joy for us returning to him. See, they would have told this deportation story because it would have been so meaningful to them. It was an important part of their story, and everyone who told the story would have known about their pain, about their wounds, but they would have also known about God's redemption and his healing. And so they would have been excited about this Messiah. All right, you see Abraham, David, Babylon. Those are just three parts of, three names out of this genealogy. Okay, I've only given you three. But do you see how these are important? These are a big part of a bigger story. These are huge players in this genealogy. And these aren't just like good stories that we need to teach our children in Sunday school. Like these are parts of God's story. These are important players in God's story. Like we have to understand that because God is writing this bigger story of loving redemption. And the thing that's genius about Matthew, the book of Matthew, is that he gives this genealogy. And then with the stroke of his pen, in just two verses, he does something incredible. He ties Jesus into the Jewish story. You see it in verse 16 and 17. It says, in, you know, he's listing all these generations. And it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, it's, that's not his last name. Okay, it's the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, the Christ, 14 generations. Now these are just 14 generations that Matthew picked. They're not all of them, but he just picked those 14. So you see, the story is even bigger than this genealogy. And that's the point that he's trying to make over and over is, look, there's this bigger story that's happening. There's this been the, the Messiah that's been promised, and he's finally here. And so the book of Matthew is saying, look, I know that you're a bunch of Jewish people, and you have this Jewish story that's important to you. Well, here's the culmination of it. Here's the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, the one that you've been waiting to redeem you. He's come. His name is Jesus. And Matthew is writing to these people who are clearly familiar with the Old Testament and with these Jewish customs because he doesn't explain some of the Jewish customs. He just says, I know you guys know how to do this. And so he talks about it that way. He also uses all these Old Testament terms for Jesus, like Son of God or Son of David or Emmanuel, like God with us, or King of the Jews. He uses those kind of phrases 39 times in his book because he's saying... The story that you live by is now fulfilled in Jesus. This is the climax of the story. This is the most important part of the story. This is the Messiah. He's come, finally, and he's come to save you. And what's, what's really cool about Matthew is that he writes in this unique way where he uses this story kind of narrative style of writing, but he weaves in these five blocks of teaching these five discourses, if you would like the proper word. 
Uh, don't look at it now, but it's in your reflections. You can read it later. Um, I gave them to you. And so Matthew is writing. He's, he's, he presents these five blocks of teaching woven into the story of Jesus. And this is where we see these popular uh, passages that we know, like Sermon on the Mount, or the Beatitudes, or a lot of the parables that you and I know and love. This is where you find them. It's woven into this story of Jesus. And Matthew writes in this beautiful way because he's telling the story of Jesus being the Messiah who has come to bring blessing, not just to the Jewish people, but to all people, to all the nations. And he's saying, I want you to follow me so that you can be a blessing to the whole world. And Matthew proves that Jesus is the Messiah by showing his life and how he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And showing his ministry and his teaching and how it's unlike any other person before him. And then you think about the story. If you were a Jewish person and you thought the Messiah is here. And then plot twist, the king is crucified. Uh, wait, what? I thought he was the Messiah. And for three days, you're kind of, like, despondent, right? Like, for three days, you're like, well, I was wrong. Got the wrong story. But then after three days, plot twist again, resurrection. Jesus is back, showing that he's the Messiah because he has defeated sin and death. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, showing that he's the Messiah, proving it. And Matthew's story of Jesus is showing you why you need to find your story in the bigger story of God's redemption. Why you need to figure out, how do I participate in God's loving story of redemption in my life? It's showing you and trying to convince you that you need to live by the story of Jesus rather than the story of yourself. A lot of y'all know I like Dan Allender. He has this great quote that's um, in your bulletin. It says, we are, talking about people, we are, in fact, a unique, once-on-the-earth life that reveals the story of God in a fashion that no one else will ever do in the way we are written to reveal. I love that quote. Like, all of us are telling a story, and everybody's story is different. But you are telling something about the character of God. You are telling something about the story of God. And everybody's different. I like to have concrete application for you usually. Like here are three different ways that this applies. Like, but when it's unique to every person in the room, it's kind of, have, kind of hard to have concrete examples for you. So here's my, here's my concrete application for you. Find someone today and talk to them about how your story can be part of God's bigger story. That's it. Talk to someone today about that. What would it look like for you to talk about how God is calling you to boldly participate in his grand story of redemption? What would that look like? And how it's bigger than just your own. And I know some of you are going, why, like, why should I even care about this? I'm bored. Will you be quiet? <laughs> uh. Why does this matter to me? All right, we're about to get zero to 60 fast. Here's why it applies to you. Here's why the story uh, doesn't end with the apostles. 
Because I think a lot of times that's where we think the story's over. It's over, right? It's just, that's what I read about, and it's done, and that's the end. Hold on. Okay, the story doesn't end with the apostles. John, the last apostle, dies in 90 AD. But John had disciples. Did you know that? John discipled other men. A guy named Polycarp. He was a disciple of John, and he helped establish the early church. And there are other guys like Origen and Tertullian and Athanasius and Augustine who are helping establish the early church. And they're trying to systematize all of our theology from the Bible and trying to get it so that we can understand it in a really helpful way. And during this time of the early church, about 324, an emperor becomes a Christian. A guy named Constantine, who was emperor over all these countries. Christianity had spread all over the place. And he had become a Christian. And so he says, you know what? Everyone in my kingdom is going to be a Christian. Yeah, Constantine, like, that sounds great, but that's not how it works. That's like me going, all right, none of y'all are going to be sick anymore. Like, I don't have that kind of power. He didn't have that kind of power. And so what happened was, over time, Christianity kind of got deconstructed. Over time, it kind of got watered down. Like, following the story of Jesus, if everybody is talking about how they do it, really, like, no one is doing it. And so the church goes in kind of these dark ages where the gospel is kind of muddied, where church leadership has become very um, corrupt. And all the way from the top down, you got these terrible leaders who are manipulating people and taking advantage of people. And then around the end of the 13th, around the 1300s, people start to fight back. And there's this guy named John Wycliffe who fights. He's a, a seminary professor in Oxford, England, and he says, look, we need the Word of God. It needs to be important again. And they go, no, we don't care about you. We just want you to be quiet. And he says, no, I'm going to go translate it into English so that everyone can have it. So he starts to do that. There's this other guy who's in Prague, and he's in the, the year 1415, and his name's John Huss. And he comes, and he fights against authority, and he says, look, we need the Word of God. You need to believe in the Word of God again. And they say, you need to be quiet, or we're going to kill you. And he says, I don't care. And he's burned at the stake for the story of Jesus. And these two guys are just a few examples of what, was some, of, of what was about to come, which was really something big. Because in 1517, a guy by the name of Martin Luther, probably heard of him, he's a lawyer and he got stuck in this thunderstorm. And he prayed to a saint and he said, look, if you deliver me, I'll become a monk. And he made it through, so he became a monk. But he's this like guilt-ridden monk and he just beats himself all the time because he can't stop his sinning. But he studies the Bible and he begins to push back against the church and say, look, you need to start teaching thing, this thing called justification. You need to start telling the story of Jesus the right way. And they go, you know what? You better be quiet or we're going to kill you. He says, I will not. And so they, they say, well, we're going to kill you then. And as he's leaving, he gets kidnapped. You know who kidnaps him? His homeboy. Frederick of Saxony. This is good friend. He says, hey, you know what's going to happen? You're going to go up into that tower and you're going to hide out and you're going to translate the Bible from Latin into German so that everyone can have it. I'm going to pay for everything and there's this thing called a printing press that just got invented and we're going to give the Bible to everyone. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> so that's what they do. And at the same time, there's this guy in France. You might have heard of him too. His name's John Calvin. He's been teaching and preaching. He's been studying Augustine and the early church fathers. And he's learning and preaching in a way that people haven't heard of this in a long time. And they like it. And they're being converted. And they're starting to put their faith back into Jesus. 
And these two guys are the two biggest players in what we know as the Reformation. It was the biggest revival that had happened in the church since Pentecost. And this was in 1500. But you remember when Columbus came to America? Remember when he sailed the ocean blue? Right? 1492. So America was already in play. It was already... Uh, had people over here, and now they have a place to send all these protesters, right? All these people who protest, like, when you don't follow the Bible, I'm protesting, right? Like, all these people who take serious the story of Jesus, like, get out of here, we want you gone, like, go to America. So these protesters, right, who we would say Protestants, protestants, right? These protesters are sent in the 1500s and 1600s and 1700s to America, and they come to America, and they end up all over the East Coast. And then in the North, there's this guy named Jonathan Edwards, who's brilliant, probably one of the best theologians ever in America. And he's preaching and he's teaching all over the place and thousands of people are being converted. And in the South, there's a guy named George Whitfield and two brothers named John and Charles Wesley. And all of a sudden, they're preaching in the South and all kinds of people are coming to Jesus. And the stories now come to America. And people are, by the thousands, coming to faith and putting their faith back into Jesus. There's stories of people in New, of churches in New York where 40 member churches went to 4,000 in less than a month. Like, that's a lot of connection cards, right? <laughs> <laughs> but sad, and this was the first great awakening in our country. That's what happened. But sadly, as fast as things can ascend, they can descend. Because this thing that came along at the end of the 1700s, kind of into the 1800s, called the Enlightenment, started to happen. Where people started to think, the Bible's not really inerrant. The Word of God isn't really the Word of God. Jesus wasn't really God. And so people are questioning, and they're saying, I don't believe that anymore. Like, use some reason or use some logic. And this is called theological liberalism, okay? Not political liberalism theological liberalism. And this is being taught in colleges in America. And this is, then it comes into the seminaries. And the seminaries get changed, and what happens? The pastors get changed. And when the pastors get changed, the churches get changed. And the churches are changed, the people are changed. And now all of these people into the 1900s are, are now being told from the pulpit, the Word of God is not the Word of God. And that brings us into the 1900s. In 1967, the biggest Presbyterian denomination makes a declaration. They say, we are going to say an official creed. And our creed is that the Bible is not the inerrant word of God. And we want all our pastors to sign it. And a lot of them did. There's a number of them that didn't. And they said, we're going to take away your building. (laughs) Okay. And they said, well, we're going to take away your retirement. And I I just wonder if they're like, have you heard of John Huss? He got burned at the stake for this. Like, you can have my retirement, okay? Because they're saying, look, I want to believe the word of God. I want to believe the story of Jesus. That is the most important thing to me. And one of the guys that was involved in this, well, let me, before I get to him. So that was in 1967, these pastors said no. And kind of over the next few years, they kind of found each other, and they started working together. And this is where the roots of the Presbyterian Church in America are formed. The PCA. I don't know if you know this, but that's our church. That's our denomination. (laughs) Okay? 
the roots of the PCA are formed. These pastors said, we are going to preach the word of God. We are going to tell the story of Jesus. And one of the guys who was involved with this is a guy named Ken Kyes. And he was very wealthy. And he began to tithe. And he began to give more and more and more to the PCA. And finally one day he had this idea. He said, you know what? I'm going to buy a top of a mountain. I'm going to make it a retreat center. And I'm going to make it a camp so that youth can come every summer and hear the word of God preached and hear the story of Jesus. I'm going to give it to the PCA. It's called Ridge Haven. It's a camp. Uh, Forge was just held there, your, your youth trip. Okay? So he does this. In 1994, there's this young 16-year-old boy who goes to that camp against his parents' wishes. I mean, against his wishes, his parents made him go. He wasn't happy because he was only concerned about making his story great. And it just happened to be that that week, a Baptist preacher was there preaching. Yes, they're in God's story of redemption, too. (laughs) But this Baptist preacher preached for the whole week. And this 16-year-old punk decided to put his faith in Jesus. And God writes the story only as God would. And he makes that 16-year-old punk a pastor. And 22 years later, I am standing up here preaching to you. 22 years later, I'm standing before you saying, here's the story of Jesus. I'm giving it to you. And now you're in play. Thanks. You're in play. You're part of the story now. And you need to think about if you've ever run a race or you've gone to a race and cheered for somebody or like you see them on TV, you think of like being in the race and someone has just handed you the baton and now you're running and you're looking over your shoulder and you're going, oh my gosh, there's Abraham and there's David and there's Jewish people and there's Jesus and there's Tertullian and John Calvin and David Fisk and Jimmy Egan and all your elders and all the people that have ever been Christians throughout history and they're cheering you on and they're saying, go, go, participate in the story. They're telling you the same thing that Jesus told his people at the end of Matthew. At the end of Matthew, he says, go, go, go and baptize them and Go and teach them. Go with the story of Jesus. Go with the good news. He's saying, go, go participate in God's story of redemption because it's so much bigger than just you. It's so much better. It involves all the nations. The story is so much more beautiful than, than just you because it's redemption on a cosmic level. It's so much better than just you. It's it's. It's so much better because it's about the healing and the restoration of all things. It's so much more significant than just you and your story because it's about the Messiah who said, I will come die for this to save it. It's so much, so much more purposeful than just you and your story because it's about the creator and the story that he is writing. 
all the way back to the beginning. And now it comes to you. The story of Jesus, the story of God's loving redemption comes to you. What will you do with that? What will you do with that? Let me pray. Jesus, it is humbling and shocking that you would use sinful people to tell your story, to tell the good news of the Messiah who has come to save the nations, who has come to redeem the whole world, to bring healing and restoration, and that you would die for us. Die for people who rebel against you. But we give you praise, we give you thanks, we give you glory that is so much bigger. That you were able to defeat our greatest enemy, sin and death. That you are with us by your Spirit. Lord, help us to understand how we can participate in this story. Help us to love this story and to live it in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.